Glenn Washington got into radio almost by accident when, on a whim, at midnight of the last day, he entered the public radio talent quest the Center for Public Broadcasting ran back in 2007. He loved listening to public radio, and he did all sorts of creative projects on the side, short films and other stuff with his friend Mark Ristich. But you know, we had day jobs. I shouldn't even call them day jobs. We had careers. But not just any career. I ran for mayor of Oakland. I have a policy background, pretty much. Um, I have a law degree. So Glenn Washington, mayoral candidate, policy wonk, lawyer, decides to host a radio show. How does that make any sense? Policy work is storytelling. If you tell someone a story that immerses them in the perspective of someone living their own life, you leave that experience wanting to get up and do something. If you're trying to get someone to change on any sort of public policy issue it may be, whoever tells the best story wins. That's the power of character. I'm Jessica Abel, and we're going Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. Whether fiction or nonfiction, the vast majority of stories we tell center around a person's journey through a set of events and hinge on the changes that the story causes in that person's life. That person, in the context of the story, is your character. The character's journey is the basis of the narrative arc of the story. So come on, let's get out on that wire. This is episode three, Walk in My Shoes. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. Chapter 1. The Content of Our Characters A character is a functional element of a story. A character is not a person. It's easy to get confused about this. It's very, very easy to fall into thinking about characters as actual people, especially when you're interviewing actual people for a nonfiction story. And please don't get me wrong. I am absolutely an advocate of treating people like people. But when you're looking at an entire, complicated human being, it's so easy to get lost in the details of their actual lives and personalities and to lose sight of what is important relative to your story. This is equally true, by the way, for fictional characters you've spent a lot of time thinking about and writing backstory for. When you're looking at how those actual or fictional people intersect with your story, it's more useful to think of them as characters. For example, this is Glenn Washington. If you see anything you want, just holler. We did our interview in a dim sum restaurant in Oakland. Once again, I was not thinking I would ever, ever play this tape in public at that time. Please think ahead when recording interviews. To reveal the fact that Glenn bought me lunch three times in four days, once in a Sichuan joint, once in a dim sum place, and once in the office of Snap Judgment, which was Afghan takeout and delicious, by the way, is an admission of my journalistic faults. It's ethically questionable to accept gifts from your subjects. Thank you. <laughs> that tape also paints a picture of Glenn's generous open nature, the way he likes to play host of the party as well as radio host. And that's true. And it's wonderful. And it's totally not relevant to the story I told in Out in the Wire, the book, 
or the role he's playing in this episode, which is voice of representation. I want to make you feel, from the person's perspective, the story that we're telling. In this episode, Glenn's job is to tell us how creating stories that allow us to walk in the shoes of someone else is both creatively and potentially politically powerful. As creator of this narrative, which again is not particularly character-driven, it's my job to look at the interview material and background information I have with Glenn and figure out how to use it, what parts of it to use, to tell my story. The story you want to tell is about events or ideas that change something, that change the world, that change the person experiencing them. Change is your story. So the things about that person that caused change or felt change, those are the parts of the person that make up the character. Jessica Abel is a person. She gets up every morning, gets her kids to school, goes to work, draws some stuff, comes home, goes to bed. I don't bring her in very often. She doesn't add much. What do you want to drink? What do you want to drink? Milk. 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 Jessica Abel, the character in Out on the Wire? Now she's something. She's an explainer, bold and clear thinking, who investigates how storytelling works by interviewing the best storytellers on the radio, guiding you through how they tell stories step by step with wit and precision. She's got great hair, and her shirt is always white and pressed. Her job is to be curious, to lead you through the elements of storytelling by revealing her own discovery and telling the story of how that discovery changed her. And that, I mean, it's for an artist, a storyteller, to have that kind of real-life effect on people is so powerful. And, and of course... The- That's the Jessica Abel, author of Out on the Wire, character, from a recent interview on WBEZ. In real life, I really am super curious, and I'm reasonably bold, and after a lot of work at it, I can arrive at thinking clearly. I've also genuinely been changed by the experience of learning about storytelling from these awesome radio producers. That is all true. It's also true that I eat yogurt and granola for breakfast virtually every morning. All of those parts of me are true, but only some of them are worth using in a story. Creating a character is not about misrepresenting people. On the contrary, it's about representing them in relation to the story at hand as accurately and as deeply as possible. And then just leaving a lot of other stuff out. These are yucky and old. Don't eat those. What are they? They're gums I found in the bottom of a something basket. Gums? You select from your material, from your interviews, from your background information, and you choose what role the character will play in your narrative. A strong character also helps you figure out the structure of your story. Their decisions drive and shape the story itself. And that story today is, what are characters? How do they work? And how can you build one that connects? What makes an engine go? Is it stock and steel and copper tubing? Or infinite care and experience with men and women working together? Chapter 2. Only Connect. But if characters are just functional story elements, if they're essentially cogs in the story machine, how do we craft characters that audience can relate to and care about as if they were real people?
Interestingly, going through the work of turning raw material into a story, of structuring and ordering, even the mere act of making choices, of editing down dozens of hours of tape into a beautiful 20-minute nugget, can allow us to connect deeply, instantly to a character, and through that character, to a person. In his radio diaries, Joe Richmond hands recorders to the diarists and guides them through anywhere from a month to a year of recording their lives. I talked to him in his then-studio in a Lower East Side tenement building complete with a bathtub in the kitchen. He had it covered with plywood serving as a counter. You know, I think that, like, with the diaries, like, if I was doing a story about, um, I don't know, about AIDS, I might try to find someone who goes against type, who's, you know... A kind of a wealthy white woman in South Africa. Mm-hmm. But with the diaries, it's almost like find the cliche, find the stereotype, and then bust it by making it a three-dimensional real person. Then he takes that mountain of tape, like seriously, over 100 hours sometimes, and edits it into an intimate portrait of someone living her life. He finds a portrait of a character within all that personhood. Mm-hmm. I think that's what radio can do. It makes these statistics or makes these cliches or these kind of mm-hmm. cardboard um, symbols that we have in our mind of certain people and it makes them like real like family members you know actually so I think that's that's the goal of the diaries Joe did a diary in the mid-aughts with a wonderful vibrant young South African woman named Tembi who had AIDS by carefully editing her material to create a clear and powerful character with her suddenly we were inside her life inside her heart so it's a bright, beautiful day. People are all out. They're starting to wash their laundries, putting them on the line. Music is coming from every house. I just love it today. In the last episode, I told the story of how David Kestenbaum grappled with finding an interesting why to a reporter's ex at a panel discussion. The key to telling a story about a big, terrible, sad, overwhelming issue like alcoholism on a reservation or AIDS in Africa is a character, a surprising character, one with a thoughtful or ironic or funny angle on the situation she finds herself in, one we can see ourselves in instead of look at as if through the thick safety glass of a zoo cage. And speaking of zoo cages, here's another tough one for you, the dwindling numbers of lions in the world. You know, why should a listener care to listen? For me, that what's important is when uh, you can make a kind of connection Ari Daniel Shapiro is a science reporter. His stories are never so personal or so intimate as a radio diary. But still, when I talked to him over Skype, he told me his job is to figure out how to help the listener connect somehow, emotionally, to the scientific ideas he's exploring. That's tough. Like, I interviewed a guy today about lions, and I asked him what it was like to, to be close to a lion. I, you know, and then you're there, he's straddling the cat. I guess the thing almost ate them. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, lions are an easy sell. I, they're, they're easier than uh, plankton, <laughs> you know. This researcher told Ari that lions used to be one of the most common mammals in the world. They were everywhere, in Alaska, in Siberia. And now there are no more than about 20,000 globally. Their future is dim. He's hopeful, but it's dim. And I asked him then, well, how do you feel about that? And he paused and um, he said, well, I get... I get really, I think he said something like choked up about this. This is a story about science. So why do we need to connect on an emotional level? 
aren't emotions the opposite of science? But if Ari doesn't at least open a door into what the scientist feels, he knows he's going to lose us. We're just weak like that. Moreover, this story about lions is also about this scientist's dedication to saving lions. This is his life's work. And that's a legitimate subject for a story on its own. And then understanding the scientist as a character is a way for us to understand, through his passion for his work, something about why saving lions matters. Lions certainly deserve better, given their role in our iconography and in our imaginations and in making the world. uh, It's actually affects me quite a bit, so let me get my act together here and I'll finish that. Ari is not the only one who has to grapple with telling abstract stories about ideas and research. This is something Radiolab does all the time, and they work incredibly hard to bring us inside the perspective of the characters in their stories. I sat in on a training session for Radiolab producers that host Jad Abumrad ran. Nine or ten people crammed into the production studio that usually holds two, sitting on the floor, perched on the desk, slouching against the door, and Jad stood in front of the dual computer screens at the workstation. One of the most effective uh, tools you have as a storyteller is to sort of perform that act of empathy, which is to try and speak from deep inside your character's head. You know, so when you're when you're when you're working with a bit, of, when you're working with characters. Um, you don't want to stand across the street from them and hold your nose. You want to be right up close to them, and you want to be somehow inside their head, forcing their perspective on other people. He paused to pull up a video on YouTube. Well, I saw a really interesting example of this, whether or not you agree with the politics of it, from Ron Paul. Imagine for a moment that somewhere in the middle of Texas there was a large foreign military base say Chinese <laughs> or Russian I think this is kind of brilliant in its way I, I must say it's like it forces you into the head of somebody who, who would normally remain very very distant and forces you to imagine yourself as a Texan looking at a Chinese soldier across the street putting us into those high-heeled Texan boots for a stitch that's the key to bringing these stories to life Getting at the interiority of the character, that's how the audience connects. And you can't fake it. People know. Here's Jay Allison. You can have boundaries on it, but you can't bullshit because mm-hmm. people will smell. I mean, any company or any individual or anybody who wants to communicate with an audience that's that savvy really has to, they have to, they have to be real, you know. Mm-hmm. It's become a kind of a catchphrase. We need to tell the story of our work, you know, mm-hmm. which, and it's kind of a code word for branding, but I think it's more profound than that, that what people really do need to do is figure out how to tell the honest story, not the PR story, not the happy talk story, but the, the, the true one. Ben. I'm I'm gonna do this thing. No, I I am walking down this road. No, I, I'm. You can't stop me. I'm totally. No, no I'm totally doing it. This, this is officially a trigger warning. I bet you didn't think you'd hear one of those on this show. If you have issues with business people talking about business stuff, if the word brand makes you cringe, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. But I think you might actually find this interesting, whatever perspective you come from. 
If you are that cringer, I was you eight months ago. For reasons that should become clear, I've been trying very hard to get beyond the jargon and understand what's important about that catchphrase, you have to tell your story, and what it means that it's a code word for branding, because that part is definitely true. Jenna Weiss-Berman, who we heard from back in episode one, had experience with having to make that happy talk kind of story. Like we would get hired by like corporations to tell their corporations stories. We would get these ideas about how we wanted to tell their organization's stories, but of course they would want it. Everything had to be super positive, which wasn't genuine a lot of the time. Which is fine. So, yeah. you know, then the job is put some sound bites together. Right. Yeah. And you're like, okay. But they'll often be like, we want, we want you to tell the story of our organization. And it's like, no, you don't. <laughs> Basically, Jenna had the problem that you'd expect her to have in this situation. The corporation wanted her to tell their story, but to do so in a way that makes them come out smelling like a rose. Nothing rough, nothing complicated. But that is not actually their story. That is not anyone's story. Conceptually, I think you all follow me here. If you don't tell the real story, if you don't reveal something of the actual messy humanity of a person or an organization, then no one will buy it. Literally. I mean, let's get real. What's the point of putting together the real story of an organization or a company? It's to connect you emotionally to it slash them. And the purpose of that is to sell you stuff. When you get down to it, that's why a lot of us cringe when we talk about branding, and especially when we hear personal brand. Because translating that into human language, it means turning a person into a product that can inspire brand loyalty through emotional connection, and thus lead to transactions. Preferably transactions of actual money, whether that's a job or a speaking gig or, you know, the sale of a comic book, for example. So I totally, totally get why my producer Ben squirms each time this subject comes up. Basically, we all curate some version of ourselves in public spaces. You want to connect with your audience, whatever that audience is, based on things that are true about you. But maybe not all the things. I'm going to talk like Mater from now on. Use that cut. That was a really good one. Whether you're a private person just looking for a job or an artist or a politician or a public figure, you still have to decide how to present yourself in some way or another. You're telling the story of you, and you want that story to be an authentic story, an honest story. But you're also very likely to want it to be an attractive story, appealing to whoever you're trying to connect with. That much we can probably all agree on. As someone who has told stories professionally for 25 years, I of course understand the value of stories. Or let me say, I understand some of the values of stories. But what I didn't get was why I wanted or had or should have a brand. I still can't even say personal brand without shuddering. I feel like I'm sticking chocolate in everyone's peanut butter here. Those of you in a world where people talk about a personal brand every day, you're probably like, what? What is the problem? And if you're on the other side... The side I come from, of independent comics and public radio and art school and liberal arts, even saying the B word without air quotes is a breach of confidence. Ironically, personal brand has an image problem. And yes, those were air quotes. 
What the people who unironically use the word personal brand mean by that is pretty much precisely what I said a few seconds ago, that we all make choices about what we project out to the world. We choose to define ourselves in certain ways, on social media, in interviews, on blogs, and even in real life when among acquaintances and strangers. Sound familiar? If it weren't so damn confusing, I would rebrand personal brand as character. Ideally, we make these choices intentionally, acting like a radio producer editing raw material into a story, creating an understanding of ourselves and others that's true, but also focused on what we do and what we want to be known for. Sometimes we make these choices unintentionally, which usually doesn't turn out all that great. So let's just say the public character of you is just that, a character. And you need to figure out what pieces of you fit into the story you want to tell of you and which pieces don't. I don't insist that you need a focus sentence of you, but it couldn't hurt. Jose owns a food truck that serves local, organic, and seasonal food because he cares about the environment and great fresh flavor. But he lives in Nova Scotia, so the available local foods for six months of the year are limited. And while you're at it, what's the XY story formula of you? I'm doing a story about me, a psychic life coach. And what's interesting about me is that I use your past lives to help you improve your present life. Looking at the character of you as a functional piece of the story you want to tell about yourself is perhaps less fraught than the B word. It is, whether we think about it or not, something we all do every day. And we all make missteps, even Ira Glass. I mean, I had the unfortunate experience in the last year of, um, of, I think, becoming too much of a character in a story in a way that I didn't understand. And that is when I did the story about my dog. And, uh, and I didn't even think it was a story. And the staff was like, no, no, it's a story. You have an unusual relationship with your dog. And then Nancy Updike interviewed me for the show. And so it was basically her story about me. I have this dog who was raised in very bad circumstances and he's a rescue and, and uh, is very anxious and has nearly died a bunch of times from his health issues. And how does that coexist in your brain with cooking for your dog every day? Well, I don't have a problem thinking that something I do is laughable. I think people had a picture of me in their head that was based on projection, on what they project onto me. And mostly the projection is, like, things about themselves. And they just assume, well, like, I kind of, you seem okay. And I guess that you're pretty much like me in the following ways. And then when I revealed, like, you know, my wife and I will spend, you know, $100 a week on dog care, people are like, oh, no, we wouldn't do that. We have children to raise. No, no, no. I think really, like, people really did have a moment of feeling like, oh, you are very different from me in a way that they were not happy with. Yeah. And, that, and that from a business point of view, it was not like the very best choice, you know, as like the host of a radio show. Chapter three, finding the person. We talked about what role a character plays in a story, that a character has a function, that you have to select what you reveal about that character carefully. And then I showed you some examples of how you can use true emotional moments to help the audience understand the stakes, why they should care. All good stuff, 
But how do you go about implementing it? And what makes one character better than any other? On the surface, we've been talking about nonfiction up until now. But if you're inventing a character, your job is to come up with a puzzle piece that will intricately and interestingly function in your story. Ben and I were brainstorming in my studio about characters, which ones work, which don't. And I apologize in advance, comic book nerds. Look at the Fantastic Four. And, Bing, yes, Flame Guy, what? Who gives a And so, so articulate to me the difference between... The difference between Bing and Flame Dude. Well, the Thing is, first of all, he's got a great accent. He's not pretty, so he's interesting to look at, even as in his human form, he's not particularly pretty. Mm-hmm. He um, feels like an underdog even before he turns into the Thing. Super smart guy, scientist, you know, um, sort of unexpectedly because he talks like a, you know, back alley Queens dude, you know. Mm-hmm. Actually gets turned, you know, everybody else gets these awesome powers and he gets turned into a big pile of rocks. And then he just feels ugly for the rest of his life. And we can all identify with feeling ugly, right? Mm-hmm. Flame dude is like young, pretty, he's got blonde hair, cute sister, he doesn't have any responsibilities, he's not in charge of anything. You have the tortured dude, who we love, mm-hmm. and then you've got the young, snotty blonde dude. Who cares about that dude? Just cut him. Fantastic three. Looks like it's clobbering time, Johnny boy. I know, I checked my facts, and the thing, Ben Grimm, is an engineer and pilot, and he's from Yancey Street, downtown Manhattan, not Queens. He was even leader of the Yancey Street gang in his youth. But the point stands. The thing. He's charming. He's flawed. He's real. People love the thing. Flame guy. Who is that guy? There's nothing I can relate to about him. That's the difference. I always started my stories with characters. One of my big problems as a beginning writer is that I love to come up with characters to invent people with interesting lives. But there. There it is. The crux of the problem. I thought of them as people with lives. And fictional characters are not people with lives. They have backstory often, yes, but they are cogs, they are engines, they are functional. And even their backstory should be only as deep as it needs to be to allow you to understand how they will behave in a given situation, functionally. In creating fictional characters, you need to come up with personality traits and motivations that dovetail specifically with the spark of your story, what screenwriters call the inciting incident, that thing that happened that sets them into motion. You've got to design faults into a character. If you don't, they will never make the wrong choices, and your story will be very, very short and very boring. And when you design faults into a character, you've got to design conflicts and events that trigger those faults, that intersect with them. Look at the poor thing. What kind of a thing have I turned into? What have you done? What have you done? Look at me! The underlying dynamic of his relationship with his friend and boss, Mr. Fantastic, is that of guilt and blame intermixed with familial love. 
They are best friends and colleagues. But it's Mr. Fantastic's fault that they were on that spaceship to be pelted with cosmic rays, and the thing turned into a pile of orange rocks. And that fuels story after story, as Mr. Fantastic tries desperately to figure out how to revert him to human form. And then he doesn't want to revert, thinking his girlfriend might not love him that way. And then he reverts anyway. And then he reverts back. And readers eat it up. In one famous storyline, The Thing is on another planet for a while, and when he gets back, he finds out his girlfriend, Alicia, has become involved with Johnny Storm. That's flame guy to you and me. Fans hated this story so much that Marvel retconned it to make it so that the so-called Alicia who fell in love with the flame guy was actually Leisha, an alien, shape-changing scroll. The real Alicia was off somewhere in suspended animation. That is a sign of a well-loved character. Great characters make a story, but it's also hard to find them in real life. Finding a character out in the real world who is not only as functional as the thing, but who can also actually talk and express himself well, well, that's not an easy job. Remember that story I related in episode two about the 14-year-old girl who bought a house? I am Willow Tofano. I am 14, and I own a house. Every time I talked to David Kestenbaum of Planet Money, he brought her up. More specifically, he talked about Hannah Jaffe Walt, the reporter on that story, and her amazing ability to find that one person who somehow embodies the entirety of the story you want to tell. But even Hannah found it difficult. At first, she was determined that the Planet Money staff had to buy a house in Florida, which would mean that they were that she was the character. But then a real estate agent she was talking to mentioned that her daughter had bought one. You want to find people. Really, you want one person who has seven weird things happen to them. But sometimes you just actually can't find her. And then you go to plan B. I mean, I think anytime you can make the reporter into a character in the story, like, it can be it can be really helpful. Yeah, like, you know, even if it's as simple as, you know, Hana gets curious about... Who owned all the toxic assets in Toxie? That's a reference to a story Planet Money did on toxic assets. If you read the papers during the height of the financial crisis, you heard this term constantly. But I had no idea what they were until I heard this Planet Money series, where they bought one and then tried to keep it alive like a pet. Who owned all the mortgages that made up Toxie? And she's just curious, and it's her curiosity that's motivating it. It's a case where the reporter did buy the house, metaphorically speaking. Well, uh, the day has come. Toxie has officially died. It's over. It, it is over. That means we're, there's no chance we're getting any more checks. It, she's, she's dead. Hannah, she's, she's not coming back. Chapter 4. When characters change, we change. And one of the ideas, one of the reasons that Prada Ambulante began was that I had this notion that um, that some of the most interesting voices weren't included because they were in Spanish. We when I heard about the then brand new show, Radio Ambulante, the first day I was out in Oakland working with Snap Judgment, I raced to get in touch with the founder, novelist Daniel Alarcón, while I was still in town. 
we ended up talking in the entry to a cafe, which was in the lobby of an office building in Berkeley. You know, the, for aesthetic reasons, the BBC obviously is going to privilege the voices in English because you can have 45-minute radio documentary voiceovers right. the whole time. It's going to be awful. I understand that. That makes perfect sense if you're the BBC. But if you're Peruvian and you're trying to tell a Peruvian story and it's being told mostly in English, then it's problematic. And I had this notion, I was like, you know, what would it look like if there was a radio a space on the radio for these stories in their language, in their original language, in the language they need to be told in. Radio Ambulante is the first show of its kind, which is to say, the first radio show slash podcast of narrative journalism to be made in Spanish. It's a remarkable thing. The access it affords to stories, characters, and people is just astounding. No one else is telling these stories in this way. No one else affords us this access to such a huge slice of our world. Just as Joe Richmond spoke about the value of allowing us to intimately get to know someone with AIDS in South Africa, so too do we need to hear the true voices of people from all over the world in every language. And even, maybe especially, in our own language and right in our own backyard. We think that America is smart enough to understand America. Here's Glenn Washington again. And so if I talk to a guy somewhere and, and he's not using the King's English, I think that Americans are going to have to, they're going to have to get used to that or we're going to, or we're going to have to structure it in a way so they can get most of it. Or we'll try to narrate around it as best we can, but still try and keep to the spirit of what the person's saying. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. And you do not do it perfectly at a time. Despite the fact that his radio show, that all radio shows, that all stories are constructed, given that fact, how can we let people speak for themselves? That's what we're going for. That's the intent, to make sure it's their story, even while it's also your story. Well-made stories allow us to really hear other voices. And as Jay Allison says, actually listening can be radical. For the moth to sit and listen to for 15 minutes to somebody who you would have written off or not cared about or not thought would be, or, or, or maybe was politically or socially abhorrent to you, but to listen to their full story and hear how in some ways they're, li- they're like you. It means that you have to change a little bit. You have to change your attitude. This is what we look for in fiction as well. The reason we read fiction 80% of the time is it's so we can walk in the shoes of someone else, feel what they feel, and be changed as they are changed. I mean, 20% of the time, it's something else. But plenty of the time, this is what reading is about. This is what moviegoing is about. This is comics. This is poetry. This is radio. Now let's get to this week's challenge. This week, you will be unsurprised to hear, I want you to create a profile of one or more primary characters in your story. Obviously, if you came up with an XY story formula and or a focus sentence last time, it's very likely that you already have a character you've been thinking a lot about. And it's somewhat artificial to break the character element out this way. But I think it'll be a valuable step to make 
to develop a backstory and then figure out what characteristics or stories you really want to hone in on and use and what you can kind of stick in a drawer, what might not be relevant to the story you want to tell. If you're doing nonfiction, there's something particularly backwards about the process I'm suggesting. You can't really know what a character is like, what goes into her motivations until you interview her. And we haven't really talked about interviewing in depth yet. That comes in episode five. But stick with me here. Treat this as an exercise and write about your character as if he were fictional. Make up the things about your character that you hope to find in real life that would make your story awesome. But then, please be prepared to chuck all this and be surprised by reality when you actually sit down with him. Ben and I were talking about characters, looking for a straightforward example of how to use an element of backstory to understand how a character will behave. And we found ourselves talking about my book, Trish Trash, again. The setup of the story is that she was living with her aunt and uncle. The reason that that is the setup of the story is because it was a riff on Star Wars. So I'm like, okay. It's her uncle and aunt. And then that means her parents are gone. And so then I sort of extrapolated that out. I'm like, her parents are gone. Well, if her mother's missing, then both Trish and Salima are going to have really strong feelings about that. If she has gone missing in a way that suggests that she's dead, but there's no proof, it's a really difficult thing to live with. And her aunt Salima is going to be angry and have a lot of very complicated feelings about the, the Martian natives because it seems like they were involved in what looks like her sister's death. And she's a woman who's a scientist, and normally she would be very open-minded, and she'd be the kind of person who would be like really interested in learning about the native species of the planet, but instead she's angry. And so that changes how she acts and changes the decisions that people around her make as well. And crucially, that element of backstory has to be woven into the way they act, the kind of mistakes they make. It has to tip the balance in moments of dilemma, which is when a character is faced with a choice, but neither option is perfect, neither is clean. Dilemma is the key to powerful storytelling with characters. If you take option A, you hurt someone you love. If you take option B, you hurt yourself. There is no happily ever after in complex, engaging stories. What's important then is that then becomes motivation for action. You know, that if you just... The thing that you could fall into easily is that you make up backstory about a character like this. Her sister's missing, you know, her parents are missing, and they have strong feelings about that. And that just, like, screws everything up because you're always worried about that, but it doesn't actually have any motivating effect on action. You know, it doesn't actually tie into the story. So if you come up with something like that, you have to make sure that that's a piece of what happens in the story, that it's all woven in, woven into their action. Often you've got to do quite a bit of thinking and writing to get to the point of understanding a character well enough to narrow your description down to just a few sentences. In the show notes and in the community, I've posted a handout that I use in my classes called More Than 20 Questions for Characters. And that comes from the very same chapter in Drawing Words and Writing Pictures, my textbook, as the original Trish illustrations that sparked the whole saga. In fact, it's part two of the same activity as the spark cards I used to create Trish in the first place. It's a kind of worksheet to help you think through some of the things you might need to know about a character and to run a character through her paces a bit with questions designed to evoke stories. Treat it as a starting point, answering whatever questions are useful and adding some new ones that I hadn't thought of. But this work and this worksheet is just for you. Here's the challenge in a nutshell. 
I need you to make some hard choices and write up just a couple sentences about the character, detailing only whatever backstory is absolutely necessary to make your story work, and no more. Onward. I'll have show notes on this episode, including links to the stories I reference, and the more than 20 questions for characters worksheet on my site at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can also get show notes emailed to you if you're on the newsletter. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen to this show, you can help us out by subscribing to us there and reviewing the show while you're there. If you've never done this before, we've put a how-to together on our webpage. If you love Out on the Wire and want to support the show, check out the Out on the Wire bonus pack. In it, you get full music downloads from the show and complete versions of our new interviews, including Stephanie Fu, Jonathan Mitchell, Kazu Kibuishi, Robert Smith, and more. It's a great way to spend some time with our awesome guests and support the show at the same time. It's only $10, or more if you're feeling generous, for over eight hours of bonus content. Find out more at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jccable. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch, with music contributed by Matt Madden. Made with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And special thanks to our talented band of cartoonists-slash-voice actors. In this episode, Lucas Varela, Pedro da Premo, and Amruta Patel. See you in a week with Benjamin Frisch and Matt Madden for a discussion of some of your work from the Out on the Wire working group in our workshop episode. And then in two weeks with Episode 4, Bare Bones. <laughs>